Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Like Ethan said, my name's Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here. And today we are continuing our series enough where we're taking a look at um, money and the relationship we have with it and what God has to say with it. And one of the top questions that we ask in life is, do I have enough money? And depending on what stage in life we're at, you know, it could, you know, be attached to a different, a bunch of different things. Do I have enough for retirement? Do I have enough for the kids' activities that I have my kids signed up for? Do I have enough for rent this month? Do I have enough to buy a new pair of shoes? You could go on and on down the list, but we're frequently asking this question. And while it is an important question, it's not the most important question that we could ask. So in this series, what we're doing is we're answering this enough question, and we're doing this by exploring what does God have to say on the topic? Because if we can answer this question, then what we'll find is that'll free us up to focus on some of the other questions, actually the more important questions that we could be asking in life. And so that's what we're focusing in on on this series is this question of, do I have enough? Now, there was a king. uh, He lived a long time ago. He was, when he lived, he was the wealthiest, most powerful man alive on the face of the earth. He had more money than anybody else, and he had more influence than anybody else in his day and time. Actually, if you converted the amount of money that it's recorded that he was making, his annual income in today's dollars would have been over a billion dollars annually. I mean, just an insane amount of money. Actually, a lot of people, when they would read the accounts of how much money he had, they would read these stories and they would say, there's no way this is true. There's no way this is real. But then through archaeology, they found a lot of evidence that points to the fact that what the Bible says happened and what it describes as his wealth actually ends up being pretty accurate. This man's name was Solomon, and he used this money and this power that he had to go down the different paths that we go down in life, different paths that we go down to kind of figure out what is the purpose of life or what is, what is meaning, what's, what, what's going to make me happy in life. And so Solomon went down these various paths that we also go down, and because of his money and his power, he was re- really able to see them to their conclusion. And then he took some time and God instructed him to write down what he discovered after he did all this kind of searching. And this is one of the things that he writes about money. This is really interesting. He writes this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. I mean, just think about that observation that he's making. Whoever loves money, if it's, if it's at the top of your list, if you, if you love it, he's saying it's never going to be enough. You're always going to want more. Whoever loves wealth, never satisfied. I mean, could you imagine? I just think about that. And you, you sit there and you think about never satisfied. Could you imagine chasing something that's never going to satisfy? But that's what he's saying when money's at the top. Really what he's describing is what happens when Money moves from something we use, from a tool, to something that we love, something that we, we hold on tightly to. What happens is it's like we get on a treadmill that never stops, and it only gets faster, and we can never keep up with it. It's never enough. We're never satisfied. I mean, you just think about living a life on a treadmill where you're just not going anywhere, and no matter how hard you work or how fast you run or how quick your legs are moving, it, you're just not moving forward. I mean, that's what he's describing when he talks about this relationship we have with money when money is our top thing. So last week, we looked at the question, do I love money? And we explored this, and we kind of we turned and looked at ourselves, and 
What, what are the indicators that a person loves money? What, what would indicate that I have put money at the top and that I love money and that I'm actually living life on this treadmill? So three, or quick review, just kind of some basic categories, and this will kind of set us up for today. The three basic categories of what we can do with money. This is a review from last week. You can spend it, referred to as our lifestyle. We, we spend in order to live a certain kind of lifestyle. You can save it. That's another thing you can do with your money. Or you can give it. Those are kind of, if you, if you boil it all down of the money that I have, what can I do with that money? Those are the kind of the three things you can do. You can spend it, you can save it, you can give it. Now, there's no surprise that as Americans, spending is at the top of our list. Spending is our number one. It's one of our favorite things to do. I mean, just recently, I, you know, I got all my tax documents, and I said, oh, I'm going to go ahead and, and file. And so I was filling it out, preparing to send it in. And as I was filling out all my tax stuff, I realized, oh, I'm, I'm going to get some money back this year. And so you know, once I figured out the amount, I went to my wife, Allie, and I said, hey, we're, we're going to get some money back, and this is the amount. What do you think the next thing I said was? What do you want to buy? Yeah. And then we brainstormed of, oh, we could get this. or we. I mean, we just, we love to spend. We love it. I mean, this is why it's on the top of our list. But the problem is, is we've got this relationship with money and we're living on this treadmill. And because of this, and because of this pursuit of, of, of a more extravagant lifestyle and what can we add to our lives and what can we buy and what can we spend because of this approach to life, this actually brought tremendous damage not only to us personally, but also if you just look throughout families, you look throughout the society, it's brought tremendous damage on people's lives. So to help us out with this, what God's done is he's given some instructions. So he said, okay, these are kind of the three basic categories of what you can do with money, so let me prioritize them for you. So God gives us an order of priority on these three categories. He says, first, the first thing you're supposed to do with your money, he says you're supposed to give it. Second is savings, and then third is spending. Now, when God identifies this list, this honestly, this is, a, this is a shocking list. It goes against what we like to do with our money. And when God identifies this list and he puts saving up at the top, he actually gives a percentage and he kind of says, hey, here, and here's the baseline of what your, what your giving should be. And he, he calls it a tie. That's 10%. He's saying, hey, this is kind of the entry level point. But why God says this and why he gives this to us, one of the reasons is, is because when, you're, when we're living life on the treadmill like we are, but giving goes to the top of your list, what happens when you give is it's like you step off the treadmill. That, that love of money, that relationship where you're just, you're running as fast as you can, but it's never enough and we're never satisfied. God says, hey, okay, so let's put, let's put giving at the top. Let's separate you from that relationship. Let's make it a regular practice. And what you find is as you do that, you're stepping off of that treadmill. You're getting off of that way of living. That's actually one of the reasons he says it's supposed to be a regular practice, because as we all know, it's so easy to get back on that treadmill. I mean, you know, even a small tax return, and it's like, ooh, maybe we could get back on the treadmill. But God says, no, this is, this is the order of priority that if you want to get off the treadmill, this is how you detach yourself from the love of money. So not only does he give three priorities on what to do with our money, God also gives some help on how we get money. There's actually three categories, if you boil it down, three ways to get money, and God also gives priorities on how we get money. He says, first of all, the, 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 the top way that we're to get money is to earn it. You go, you work, you have a job, you go and you get income, you put in hours and you get dollars in return for that. You could receive it, it could be an inheritance, it could be a gift. This is another way that you could 
get money. And then a third way, and this again is, this is God's priority list, is to borrow it. Now notice, borrowing is not marked off God's list. He says, hey, this is actually a way that you can get money. But when God has it on the list, there's a reason it's at the bottom, and it comes with a whole lot of warnings. A whole lot of warnings of the dangers that can come along with going into debt and taking on debt and borrowing money. God's got all kinds of warnings. That's actually what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what does God say about this third one. It's not crossed off his list, but he has a lot to say about it. Actually, if you go back and you study through history, what you'll find is debt in some form has really almost always existed as far as we can tell. I mean, borrowing carefully done to put, you know, to provide shelter for a family, to put your family in a home, or maybe for a business to grow a business, borrowing carefully done has almost always happened, and in a lot of cases it can be very beneficial. But if you go back and you kind of study the trends of this, you find that it's really only in the last 100 years that our culture has entered into this new uncharted territory when it comes to borrowing, and there are a lot of dangers and warning signs that God gives that we, we've just ran right past them. And we've really gotten ourselves into a tough situation when it comes to this. Really what we've done in our culture is we've connected the bottom two rungs on these two orders of priority. God says, here's the priority of what you can do with it. Here's the priority of how you can get it. Well, we've created a relationship between borrowing and spending. We go into debt to live the kind of lifestyle that we want to live. We borrow money so that we can spend. We go beyond, God, God's set up this boundary. He said, okay, this is the amount of money that you have. This is what you can do with it. Here's the order of priority of how I want you to live. And we've stepped outside of those boundaries and gone beyond the money that we have so that we can live a certain way. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dust off God's warning labels. We're going to go back and see, okay, what does God say about borrowing? What does he say about debt? What are the warnings that come along with this? And then at the same time, we're going to look at three actions of if you find yourself in trouble with debt and with borrowing, what can you do to get out of that situation? So let's start with the two warnings God gives. The first warning God gives is the real cost of debt is freedom. This is the first warning. The real cost is freedom. When it comes to going into debt or taking out a loan or purchasing something on credit, usually we only look at the interest rate and the monthly payments. I mean, I, the first loan I ever took out was in college. I took out a loan to help pay for college. And I'll admit, I didn't even consider the interest rates. My question was, when do I have to start making payments and what will the monthly payment be? I didn't think about, okay, well, if I, I, I didn't even go through all the financial risks of this. I simply asked, hey, what's the payment and can I make that payment? And when they told me what it was, I was like, oh, I can make that payment. But actually, the real cost is bigger than just financial. It says this in Proverbs 22, 7. It says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, this verse makes some pretty interesting observations that we need to pay attention to. It's not saying that if someone has more money than you, they can walk up to you and start bossing you around. It's not what it's saying. But it's generally true that people with more money have more influence. I mean, that's just kind of one of the ways that life works. People who have more money have more influence, and they seem to have an easier time getting things to go the way that they want. The second observation is something we need to pay attention to. It's not saying 
But if you have a loan with Bank of America, Bank of America can just call you up and tell you to do whatever they want you to do. But it does mean that you have given up some freedom to them. Because of that agreement, because of that financial arrangement, your future is now limited. And if you don't come through on your part of the agreement, well, then your future has just narrowed even more. When we think about debt, we're, we really just think about the financial implications. But what we don't realize is we've exchanged future freedom for money right now. So we've done when we've gone into debt. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't borrow? This is important. Am I saying that you shouldn't borrow? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, you know, all borrowing, all debt should just be, would never do it. Sometimes borrowing, let's say, to provide shelter for your family, to put your family in a home, sometimes that can be a good exchange for future freedom. Sometimes, you know, something like an education, taking out a student loan in order to get a degree, sometimes that can be a good exchange. It can be. It's not always the case, but it can be. So there are times when borrowing money isn't a bad thing to do in order for the, the exchange of what you get for yourself and the people around you in exchange for that future freedom can be worth it. But here's the point. Borrowing to increase lifestyle or to maintain a lifestyle that you cannot afford is never worth the trade of future freedom. It's never worth it. Going into debt to support a lifestyle is never worth it. Our current relationship with borrowing money to increase our lifestyle really didn't exist until the 1920s. At the beginning of the 20th century, Henry Ford had come up with the assembly line and a production process that really was unmatched. I mean, it was kind of unheard of what he was doing. And so he's, he's cranking out these vehicles in Ford Motor Company, and nobody could keep up with what he was doing. In order to keep costs low and kind of help the assembly line and the production costs move forward, he offered one model in one color, black, and it was the Model T. If you wanted a car, that was your option. And he was really dominating the auto market. There are other auto manufacturers out there. So General Motors comes along, and they can't keep pace with what Henry Ford's doing and Ford Motor Company, and they, they can't you know, keep their costs low, or they can't figure out the assembly process quite like he has, and they're really having trouble getting any traction in the market. So actually, it's interesting what they do is they take their cues from what they saw happening in the fashion world. They looked at the fashion world, and they saw how when it comes to fashion, one is the products are seasonal. You know, it's, you know, it has a different season. So each season, you're introducing a new product. So they introduced the model year. This whole idea of getting a new, a new model car comes out every year. That originated with them. And then they also realized that when it comes to fashion, you're really selling products that make a statement about the consumer. It says something about people when they wear this product. I mean, you know, I, 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 even, I've, I even fall into this and think this way. Recently, you know, I wanted a hat. And I showed my wife online. I was like, here's the hat that I want. And then we went to a store. And at the store, my wife saw a similar hat, but it wasn't the brand that I wanted. She's like, hey, like, why don't we get this? It's cheaper. I was like, oh, well, it's not the brand that I want. Because somehow, I guess that brand says something about me. I'm not quite sure what it is. But it, it, it wasn't quite what I wanted. And so GM understood this, and so they started to play off this. So they, every year, they'd introduce different models, and they'd also offer the cars in various colors. So you could buy a car, and it, it spoke to prestige and power and lifestyle. Say so they introduced this. In order to sell these cars, they came up with something called General Motors Acceptance Corporation, GMAC, really saying, if you have a down payment, we'll accept you. 
What you see happening is as soon as they did this and they introduced this option of, hey, you can purchase cars on credit, within just a few years, two out of every three cars sold in the United States were purchased on credit. And this was at the beginning of the 1920s. By the end of the 1920s, GM had surpassed Ford for auto sales. They were selling to lifestyle. Hey, you can, you can live a certain kind of lifestyle if you do this. Actually, the, the results of it resulted in many of these companies who, Henry Ford actually, for one, he didn't, he didn't oppose the buying a car on credit for economic reasons at first. He actually thought it wasn't morally wise to do. He actually was opposed to it for moral reasons. But what you find is you go back and you, you, you look at this, you find that a lot of the companies who originally were opposed to this model of purchasing, of going into debt in order to support a lifestyle, many of these companies now they make more, pr more profit and they make more revenue off the purchases made on credit than the profit of the regular merchandise that they sell. Oftentimes their financing division is the most profitable part of a lot of these different companies who at first they were opposed to this. Now I'm not bashing automakers. I think they've created a ton of good products. I'm glad that you know my, my family is able to have the van that we do with the safety features. I'm not bashing them and I'm not bashing the retail industry. But the cost of their rise has been it's limited the freedom of a lot of the American public. It's had a tremendous impact on us, not necessarily because they created all this, but because we chose to buy it. We've sold our future for something now. My wife and I, we have a, uh, we have a TV. It's, it's a 40-inch TV. We had it before um, we got married. I say, it, it always sounds weird. I say it's a 40-inch TV, and at one time, I'm like, wow, that's big. And then in the next thought, I'm like, that's a really small TV. But it's probably like seven years old, and um, it works fine. It doesn't have any problems. But the, the problem is, is not does the TV work. The problem is I'll go into these stores, and I'll see all these other options of TVs out there. And I'll walk in, and you know how it is. They've got, the, they've got this like panoramic landscape, you know, like tribal jungle theme going on. You're just, and it's on all the TVs, and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, it's like it says it's got 4K. I don't even know what 4K is. I'm just going to be up front. I don't know what 4K means when it comes to TVs, but I know it looks really good, and I would really like to have one of those. <laughs> so I'll be walking through these stores, and I'll see that, and then it's just, hey, babe, like, we should get that. We, I, mean, I know our TV's fine, but we need that right there. I, I was reading about this this week, and um, check this out. If, if I bought, let's say I bought a TV for $2,500, $2,500. Let's say I paid credit for it. I made the minimum payments on that purchase that I made on credit. It would take me 28 years to pay it off. <laughs> I would end up paying over $8,000 for the TV. The $2,500 TV, it, it probably wouldn't even work by the time I paid it off. <laughs> Let's just be honest. It probably wouldn't even work. I'd pay over $8,000 over 28 years. Let's say I saved up $2,500 and I put it in an investment account. I didn't touch it, just put it there, left it alone, didn't do anything with it, didn't add to it, didn't touch it. In 28 years, it would be worth over $36,000. I mean, just think about what you can do in the future. A broken TV that I paid $8,000 for versus $36,000. It's a pretty big difference in future freedom. Actually, the average American family with credit card debt has credit card debt of $16,000. Minimum payments is going to take them 50 years to pay it off if they make the minimum payments, and they're going to pay over $45,000 in interest. That's a lot of future freedom. 
The problem with giving up so much of our freedom is God delivers life in daily opportunities. You find this again and again in the Bible. It's make the most of every opportunity. God, every day, he presents us with a set of opportunities, opportunities where we can choose to do certain things. And some of these opportunities that he presents, they're going to require us to have financial freedom in order to act on them. I mean, maybe it's an opportunity to give to some work that God's doing, and, and you can take the money that you can have, and you can turn it into an eternal investment. Maybe that's the opportunity. Maybe it's an opportunity to get a deal on something that would really help you and your family. Maybe it's an opportunity to learn something, to, to advance your career in some way, to go to a seminar or a workshop or, or go to a conference somewhere where you would really benefit from, and it might require you to travel or take time off. He's presenting these opportunities, but often because of debt, these opportunities that God gave us that could really help us or move the kingdom forward or help our family or help other people, these opportunities we're not able to take advantage of because we've already sold our future for a lifestyle today. So the first warning he gives is before you borrow, realize what you're doing is exchanging future freedom for money now. The second warning that God gives, the real risk is mocking God. The real risk is mocking God. Now, let me explain this. This sounds really hard. Let me explain this. Galatians 6, 8 says this. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is really just one of the basic principles of how God designed reality to be. If we want something, we do the work for it. We plant the seeds now for the type of harvest that we want in the future. You know, growing up, my dad, he was born and raised on a farm in West Kansas. And so when I was little, every summer we would travel back to Kansas and we would go and we would participate in harvest. And as a little kid, it was just a ton of fun. I mean, to ride in the combine and in the grain truck and then take the grain into town to the silos and the co-op and, you know, sell the grain and figure out how much it was worth. And it was just a ton of fun to be a part of this process. One of the things that I actually really appreciated is I realized how much work goes into farming. And it's a ton of work. I mean, even just during harvest season, I mean, it's sun up to sundown. And there's just, there's a, there's a window of time where, hey, if you're going to go and harvest the wheat, there's, there's a window of time. But it, it happens, and a good harvest is the result of a ton of hard work that's put in beforehand. And even realizing that it's not just the hard work that went in place a few months previous, but a lot of that hard work is going to impact how the harvest is going to be for future generations. I mean, how they treat that soil impacts what's going to happen for years to come. See, when it comes to life, when it says you reap what you sow, the point is that life is a lot more like farming than it is like fast food. See, the world that God created and designed, he designed this world to operate on delayed gratification. This is just an important reality about life. Life operates, the life God designed operates on delayed gratification. You work first, and then you get the reward. Just like a farmer, you take the time, you till the ground, you plow the ground, you plant the seed, you water it, you fertilize it, you pull the weeds, and then it's at some point in the future where you get the harvest. The harvest is not immediate. But our challenge is, is we've taken on this fast food approach to life. And a fast fruit food approach doesn't, doesn't say, okay, well, I'm going to do the work now and get the harvest. The fast food approach says, I want that, and I'm going to get that right now. That's the approach that we have to life. 
And this, this approach really runs the risk of mocking God because if we, if, we, if we live where, hey, I want that and I want it now, we're running the risk of mocking God because that's, that's counter to how he designed the life to work. You know, we think of mocking God and we think, oh, I'm looking at heaven and I'm shaking my fist and I'm waving my finger and I'm screaming at him. But that's not necessarily how we usually mock God. Usually God says, okay, here's how life works. The future is in front of you. The harvest is in front of you. You do the work now. You plant the seeds. And then that's going to determine the kind of harvest that you reap. But we say, ah, but I want the harvest now. I want it now. And consumer debt operates on instant gratification. So we say, I want that. I deserve it. And I'm going to go for it right now. So if we're not careful, we're running the, lit, the risk of creating a pattern of life that goes contrary to how God created the world to work. We're, we're, we're saying, I want the harvest, and I want it now, and I'm not afraid of the risks, and I'm going to take on this debt in order to advance my lifestyle. And God said, hey, you're going to reap what you sow. And just like the verse says, it says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. It's actually, it's kind of a warning, a wake-up of don't be deceived because you can if you choose to live this way, you, you're free to choose that, but nobody's going to get away with it. It's going to catch up with you. If, you. if you're living for the harvest right now, and that's what your life is focused on, it's only a matter of time before you wake up to the reality that this is the way that God designed life to work. So God gives us this, this warning. If you, want, if you want a harvest of wheat, you have to plant wheat. You can't spend your life planting weeds and living for the moment and instant gratification and expect to reap a harvest of wheat in the future. That's just not how life works. So he gives us this warning. The real risk is we could live counter to the way that God set up life to work, and no one gets away with that. So a challenge for us is we need to learn to practice delayed gratification. I actually think this is why a budget is so helpful. When you, when you have a budget and you actually stick to it, not just a theoretical budget, but a real budget, and you stick to it, what you're doing is you're learning to say no to yourself. So when you have a budget and you say, okay, this, I'm going to give this amount, I'm going to save this amount, this is what I have left over, and these are kind of the essentials that I have to pay for, and these are some of the optionals, and once you have that and you determine where your money's going to go, you're going to encounter situations where you have to say no to the desire to, I want that and I want it right now. You're going to have to learn to say no to that. That's actually a really good thing. It's really good to develop that, that lifestyle where you're not just controlled by the desire to have the harvest in the moment. Actually, to the fellow parents in the room, I, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. It's actually our responsibility as parents to teach our kids this. You know, that's one of the things as parents, we're, we're instructing our kids, this is who God is, this is how he set up the world to work, and this is how you're supposed to live in it. And so our kids need to know that you do the work first, you plant the seeds, and then you get the harvest, then you get the reward. That's something that we've got to teach our kids. I mean, I, I don't know with my kids exactly how it's going to work out, but you know, if they're struggling with this, they might get shipped to West Kansas, and they might have to go work the farm for a while to realize, hey, this is how life works. This is just a reality about it. I mean, you know, the kids, you know, before you play, you do the homework. You know, you work first, and then you get the reward. This is a reality. If we're not careful, we could develop a pattern of life that goes against the way that the world operates. So if you find yourself in trouble with debt, if you've kind of violated these two warnings, you've sold your future, 
you're living a pattern of life that potentially mocks God, what should you do in that situation? Well, I'm going to give you three actions of what you should do if you find yourself in this situation. We're going to call this the Proverbs 6 plan. Proverbs 6, what do you do if you find yourself in trouble with debt? This is what it says. Verse 1, it says, My child, if you have put up security for your friend's debt, you've co-signed a loan, or you've agreed to the debt of a stranger, you've co-signed a loan. If you have trapped yourself by your agreement, it's reference to debt, and are caught by what you've said, reference to debt, he says this, he says, follow my advice and save yourself, for you have placed yourself at your friend's mercy. Now, when this is written, we didn't have the banking system like we have today, so you would go into debt by borrowing money from a friend or a family member or a neighbor. In our situation, your friend might be Discover Card or Wells Fargo, or you go on and on down the list. So what's his advice if you find yourself in trouble with debt? What are you supposed to do? He gives three actions after he says, if you find yourself in this situation, this is his advice. Number one, change what you can. It's the first thing you do. You change what you can. Verse three, now swallow your pride, go and beg to have your name erased. Two tendencies when people find themselves in trouble with debt. First tendency is to act like, you know, they don't really have a problem to begin with. No, it's not that big a deal. I don't need any help. You know, I'm just not going to deal with it. It's kind of, kind of this, like, ignore it. It's not that big a deal. The second tendency is, okay, I do have this problem with debt, but this part of my life is kind of off limit to change. This part of my lifestyle, I really enjoy doing this, so we're not going to change this part of my lifestyle. Actually, that's opposite of what the verse says to do if you want to get yourself out of the situation. It says, swallow your pride. Humble yourself. Like, come to terms with reality of this is the situation that you find yourself in. This is what's happening. You've, you've sold your future. You've lived this lifestyle. This is the reality. Go and beg to have your name erased. Do what you can. You've got to make changes. This is not a time to just be like, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. I have a good friend, um, and he got himself in trouble with debt, and so he actually downsized where his family lived in order to pay off debt. He changed their living situation. Actually, what's even more amazing to me about that is he didn't move out of Huntington. I think that's amazing. He stayed here, and he got out of a tremendous amount of debt. I mean, do you need to sell your new car and drive an older car? Do you need to decrease the number of activities that your kids participate in? I mean, you got to ask yourself the tough questions. What needs to change? Do you need to get rid of cable? Do you need to decrease your data plan? Do you need to get rid of the new iPhone and get a flip phone? I don't know. It's still an option. They actually still sell those. It's still an option, and they're pretty inexpensive. You've got to ask yourself the question, what needs to change? Do you need to take on a second job? You've got to make changes. Change what you can. The next verse, in terms of his advice, he says, don't put it off. Do it now. Don't rest until you do. His advice is do what it takes. Do what it takes. Don't put it off. When it comes to debt, there are those pesky interest rates. Did you know the average American with credit card debt thinks they owe 40% less than they actually do? Think about that. The, the average person with credit card debt, if you went up to them and you asked them, how much do you owe? You know, they would throw out a number. That number is 40% less than what the credit card company or the lender says that they actually owe. So the average person, ah, you know, give or take, probably around, you know, $10,000. The lender, it's actually $16,000. You can easily fall into debt. You cannot fall out of debt. It takes a tremendous amount of determination and intensity 
if you're going to get out of this. You have to do what it takes. So just like it says, it says, don't put it off. Do it now. I mean, this afternoon when we post this message, it'll probably be posted around noon. When this message is posted online, we're going to include with it something called the Family Budgeting Worksheet. And in this, it's a 17-page document. It's got some really helpful information. If you find yourself in trouble with debt, I would encourage you. I, I went through it this week. Spend some time going through this document. It asks you some tough questions. It gives you some categories. It gives you some next steps. There's a place where you kind of break down, okay, here's the financial situation that I've found myself in, and here's a budget that I can set up with my family. I can set up a plan based on this information. So in order to apply this verse of don't put it off, do it now, don't rest until you do, what this is saying is if you are planning on watching the Olympics this afternoon, don't. Don't. Go figure this out. Don't go to the beach this afternoon. Don't go take a nap. This is serious. This is urgent. Do what it takes. Do it now. Don't put it off. Take the time. This, this budgeting plan, it's not like a sit down in five minutes, you've got it figured out. It's a 17-page document. It's going to take you probably a couple hours to go through. But this is serious. This is something to take seriously, just like the verse says, just like the advice of this writer. Again, a third one, third action, run from new debt. Verse 5. I love this illustration. Save yourself like a gazelle escaping from a hunter, like a bird fleeing from a net. Run from new debt. Don't go, don't go sniffing around. Don't evaluate, oh, what are the interest rates? Could I make the payment? Get away from it. Run from it, just like it says. Here's a picture of a gazelle escaping from a cheetah. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it in this picture, but the gazelle looks like it's screaming. It does, and I, I actually love that. What's interesting to me is gazelles are slower than cheetahs. The cheetah's faster, but the majority of the time that there's a chase, the gazelle gets away. And I think one of the reasons is because that, that gazelle's going, run! I mean, it's just freaking out. It's like, get away from this stuff. And that's, that's what the Bible's saying. Hey, you know, when it comes to this, you don't play with this stuff. You know, we're talking about, we're talking about your future, we're talking about your freedom. These are serious issues. We're talking about developing a lifestyle that, that, that ends up with us shaking our finger in the face of God. This is not something to be taken lightly. You run from this. Now, if you, if you do this, if you, let's say you take this Proverbs 6 plan, you put it into action, is everything going to be perfect next week? No, it's not, because you've sold your future you got to realize, okay, I've got to take the perspective of a farmer. Instead of leaving, living for immediate gratification and a harvest right now, I've got to realize that there's a whole lot of work that I've got to put in if there's going to be a future in front of me. you got to realize you're living for the future. You're going to have to take responsibility for past actions. You're going to have to own up to the fact that, hey, it was my decision that got me in this situation. It was, it was my financial habits that caused this. There are some patterns in my life that need to change. But here's the thing. If you, if you buy into these warnings from God and you take his action and you put it into practice, there is a lot of hope in that. Because in your future, there can be a harvest of freedom when we take God seriously on a topic like this. So I encourage you, consider his warnings. Don't just run through the warning signs. If you find yourself in this situation, take action. Two next steps I've got for you real quick while I wrap up this morning. The first one is I'd encourage you to work this Proverbs 6 plan. 
If, if you are sitting there and you're like, oh, this is me. I've got myself in that situation. I would sit, sit down with these three and consider the advice found in Proverbs 6. The next one is work through the budget worksheet. You know, that's going to be, like I said, posted online probably around noon today. So I encourage you, take some time, go through that this afternoon. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Do what it takes. It's going to take you some time. It's not going to be immediate. If you'll join me, we'll pray together. Father, I thank you for not being silent on the topic of money and not just allowing us to blindly stumble our way through life, continuing to cause more and more damage. But I thank you for speaking clearly on this topic. God, your clarity points to the fact that, that you, you love us. You don't want us to get stuck on a treadmill that we can't get off of, but you want us to be free. And, and you want us to have a future where we reap a great harvest. So Father God, I thank you for speaking on this. I thank you for showing your love and your clarity on not being silent. God, I pray that as we take what we're learning and we put it into practice on this topic of money, God, I do pray that quickly we would start to see how your way of life makes so much more sense than what comes naturally to us. I thank you again for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.